All right, well, several uh, months ago, my wife and I took our son to his first play, so his first experience with a large theatrical production. It was actually just right up the street here at uh, the Franklin, Parks, uh, Franklin Park Performing Arts Center, a uh, production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, and needless to say, it was uh, a ton of fun. Uh, the show went off well. Uh, the cast and crew did great. I, I think some of those songs, I know some of those songs are still stuck in our heads, uh, and we revisit them often. Uh, but one of the joys of, of taking our son to a, a show like that for the first time was kind of seeing him and, and actually seeing ourselves ooh and ah over each different set as the curtain lifted each scene. So the curtains uh, were drawn back, and there would always be something new to take in. Like, oh, there's a new... There's a new building. <laughs> there's a new prop. There's a new, there's a new actress hiding, right? Uh, so doubtlessly, those sets and those routines had been developed uh, months in, uh, beforehand. Uh, the cast and crew had rehearsed with them. They knew them. They were accustomed to them. But for us, uh, the experience was new. It was brand new. Uh, and each time the curtain went up, it was like we had to become reacquainted with what was going on. It's kind of a whole new world to take in. Uh, maybe you uh, enjoy those kind of things. You can think back to productions that have kind of taken your breath away. I've never been to Broadway. It's been one of my dreams. But, but I can still remember kind of those stage presentations that just stick in my memory, just kind of the, the, the breath taken away as the curtain rolls back. There's just so much action. There's so much going on, so much beauty. Well, today we're continuing on in our study of the New Testament letter of Ephesians. And we've come this morning to the third chapter and here we see the Apostle Paul, this missionary of the early Christian church, talk about a mystery, uh, the mystery of Christ, he calls it. And the mystery he's talking about is the gospel. It's God's grand plan to save. And it's a plan that was formerly hidden, says Paul, but has now been revealed. It's a, it's a, it's a plan, this mystery is, that if you will, was kind of kept backstage, kind of veiled from the eyes of man. Uh, but now, says Paul, now that curtain has been removed and God's plan has become fully visible, revealed. So let's dig into this passage this morning. Let's see what this plan is and what Paul is so excited about. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians can be found towards the end of the Bible. If, if you're new to the Bible this morning and you have one, uh, you can always use the table of contents in the front to kind of find Ephesians. It's 18 books from the end of the Bible. And, and this morning we'll be in chapter 3, so that's the big bold number uh, in your Bible. And we'll be cons considering verses 1 to 13, which are the littler numbers. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And if you don't have a Bible and you don't have a Bible that you can use at home this morning, uh, we just want to... Uh, make you aware that there are Bibles that we'd love to give you out in the Connect table, so please avail yourself of those as our gift to you before you leave this morning. So let's follow along as I read for us chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, well, this, this morning, let's uh, consider this passage together in three parts. So three points that probably won't surprise you, but believe it or not, each of the points will begin with the letter M. So trying to be a good Baptist preacher here. So three points. First, the mystery. Uh, second, the minister. And the third, the manifold wisdom. So it's really not that creative. Paul uses all those words right there, doesn't he? Uh, mystery, minister, manifold wisdom. So first, the mystery. So again, as, as we've just seen, the mystery that Paul is talking about here isn't, isn't something that we might call mysterious. You know, when we think of the word mystery, we think mysterious. We think uh, something either kind of implausible or, or mystical, something hard to understand. Um, so we wonder kind of how that one guy got that high-paying job with no prior experience in the field, right? That's a mystery. Uh, or we look at kind of something like the Loch Ness Monster, all the shrouded speculation about that legend, and we're like, well, that, that's a mystery. That's not really the way Paul's using that word here. Uh, no, the, the message of the mystery is clear. It's not hard to understand. But the mystery hasn't always been ex- uh, accessible. So this message hasn't always been revealed. God's plan hasn't been fully shown. So Paul's speaking as a, when he's using the word mystery, he's talking about a reality, a truth that was hidden, but now is made known. So the curtain's been pulled back, and God's salvation plan is kind of has the spotlight shining on it. It's lit up so that we can see what it is from front to back. So what is the mystery? I love it when Scripture gives us a clear definition, and that's what Paul gives us right there in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that sounds a lot like what we considered last week, right? If you were with us at the end of chapter 2. And Paul is just continuing on in that theme of what he's just written. And he's saying that this is God's plan and it's been made known. It's that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these folks that he just talked about as being far off, cast away, separated from Christ, are now able to be saved, are now brought near to God. But I think the mystery goes even deeper than that for Paul. Because in some ways it was always kind of a possibility for Gentiles uh, 
to give up their customs, give up their gods, give up their people, and join the Jewish nation, become God's people in the Old Testament. But this mystery is new. This mystery Paul calls the gospel there in verse 7 is that the Gentiles don't need to become national Jews, ethnic Jews, to be part of God's people. No, says Paul, God has done something totally different and amazing. He's created a new people. It's the church. So look back there in chapter 2, verse 15. We looked at that last week. Jesus came as our peace. Why? What was the purpose? So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, speaking of the Jew and the Gentile. So making peace. So the mystery hidden but now revealed is that God has brought both Jew and Gentile to himself in Christ. Not through obedience to the law, not through keeping sacrificial rituals, but solely through faith in Christ alone. This is the mystery that the curtain has revealed when it's drawn back. There's a new people of God. There's a new community at work here. All possible through union with Christ. So if you've been with us, you've seen that Paul has rung this bell of union with Christ over and over again. So he said that what it means to be a Christian is to be found in Christ, to be joined to Christ. It's the only way to be saved and to be made right with God. And and let's remember what that means. It means that our lives are, are hidden in Christ. And now his righteousness is our righteousness. His life is our life. His death is our death. And his position before God as God's beloved son is now our position before God as God's beloved sons. We've been made alive together with Christ. We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul is saying everything, all the blessings that we have is because we are in Christ, joined by faith. And this union with Christ that has brought both Jew and Gentile close to God and formed this new people. There in verse 6, Paul uses three descriptions of this new people to define the mystery of God's plan for salvation. So let's look at those briefly. He says first there that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs together with God's people. So the blessings God has in store for those who belong to him are now in store for these Gentiles. Uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul says it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This language is language of a, of a new family. Paul said it at the beginning of Ephesians, right? One of the blessings of union with Christ is adoption. We now have God not as our judge, not as our enemy, but as our father. And so we are constituted as a new family. Jesus as our older brother, the blessings that go to him come to us as his co-heirs. Paul continues there to say that the Gentiles are now members of the same body. So he's already used this illustration briefly of a body uh, to talk about this new people of God at the end of chapter one. And he'll really dig into that in two weeks when we consider chapter four about how Uh, union with Christ works in the metaphor of a body. But here he he talks about it as well, briefly. Jews and Gentiles are part of this new work, this new body, equally united to God or to Christ by faith. 
Paul says it really clearly elsewhere. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks, starts talking about kind of your regular physical human body. And then he uses that to help us understand the church. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And I think we, we know this so well, but to the, to the early church, this was radically transformative. It changed their whole thinking. It was amazing news. So as Christians united to Christ, we're united to one another in his body. We're all different members. Uh, we exercise different functions. We have different personalities, different gifts, but we're all in the same body. We all belong to Christ, and we belong to him together. And there's no part of the body that's more privileged or more fortunate or promoted above another. Jew and Gentile are on equal footing in this new people of God. And then there, the last description in verse 6. Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul writes in Galatians 3, If you are Christ's, so if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So like we discussed last week, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he promised to bless Abraham, and through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And like we saw last week, as the Old Testament progressed, God made good on that promise, all the way uh, to sending his own son to die for sinners, so that people from every corner of the earth could be brought near and saved by repentance and believing. This was the fulfillment of God's promise. And as the church, as those who from every part of the earth have come to Christ, we have shared in this promise to Abraham, to the Jews. Actually, we're the fulfillment of that promise. And like Abraham received that promise by faith, so do we come to God by faith. In this way, we are Abraham's descendants. We're in his line. We inherit the promises made to him by faith. And so John Stott, the uh, great preacher of the last century, looks at this verse and writes, is really helpful. To sum up, we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. I think that clearly states it and sums it up. Let's repeat that. To sum up, we may say that the mystery of Christ is a complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union that both have with Christ. And so this gospel of reconciliation through the cross that Paul has spoken about so far in Ephesians creates this new community of God's people. A new man is created in place of the former too. Now it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. All that matters is if you're in Christ. This is the fulfillment of God's mystery, God's plan. And there in verse 5, Paul says something interesting. He says, This mystery was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. 
So if you want to look um, later the, today at other places in the New Testament where this mystery is revealed, you can look at the middle portion of the book of Acts. Uh, you'll see in Acts 10 how Peter is shown that the Gentiles are to be brought near to God. Uh, and then Acts 11, how the Jews hear that news and they glorify God. And then they say to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this all makes sense, I guess. That's what we've been talking about, this kind of revelation of God's plan. But do you ever wonder why God chose to act that way? I mean, why? Why does he slowly, over time, or at least slowly to us, bring to pass this plan to save? Why not just raise the curtain right away? Send Jesus, show everyone they can be saved through him, and we're good to go. I go through all the, the law, the sacrifices, the ups and downs of God's people in the Old Testament. Thousands of years go by, bring Christ, and then bring to light this mystery. Why all that work? I'm sure there are a multitude of good answers to that question, but let me just highlight three briefly for us this morning. Why has God worked this way? Well, first, God is bringing to himself his people. God desires to save sinners for his own glory. That gives him glory. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so I think that as we see God bringing his, his plan of salvation about we see over time his people expanding, right? We see the multitudes of people coming to him and that those multitudes just extend over the whole earth. And as a result, we see God's glory increasing as men and women from every tongue, every language, every country give him praise. God is not slow as we perceive him. He is patient. Second, Jesus is exalted as the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is exalted as the fulfillment of God's promises. So we know that from the beginning of this world and actually time itself, God planned to save people through Jesus and his death on the cross. So we saw that uh, at, uh, in our second week together in Ephesians, where back in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, or first four, Paul said that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we see that again in verse 11 of our passage, that his plan to save through the gospel was the eternal purpose of God. But think, like, what, what's the climax? What's the focal point of that salvation plan? It's Christ exalted. It's the resurrection. It's Jesus raising from the dead as victor over his enemies and our enemies of, of death and hell and Satan and sin. This great kind of plan reaches its, its climax, its pinnacle in the work of Christ who came in the fullness of time to save. So God's plan that seems slow to us, that builds over millennia, reaches its kind of deafening roar, its greatest pitch in Jesus himself. So all the more glory goes to him. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord. 
Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Uh, So I think we see here that Jesus is just made that much greater and that much bigger because he's the fulfillment of this plan to save. And that plan has been slow in in the coming to us, in our perception, but it reaches its climax in Jesus. And so it's clear that he is the one that is exalted. Third reason, God reveals his character to us. God reveals his character to us. So in the Old Testament, we see his law, his perfect reflection of his own purity and holiness given to his people. Uh, We see his judgment on sin as we see the Israelites sacrificing animals because of their sin. Uh, We see his steadfast love persevering and pursuing Israel even as they turn away again and again. Uh, We see how trustworthy he is, how he never fails to keep his promise. We could go on and on just writing down what we learn about God's character as we wait for his mystery to be revealed. We see his wonderful wisdom, patience, grace, justice, holiness, righteousness, purity, goodness, faithfulness, love, glory, peace. And so as we think about Paul's description of this mystery, let's remember how great our God is this morning. Over the arc of time, he has constructed this plan to save us. We're the recipients of this. We're this new community recreated in Christ. So as we look back on his dealings with his people over time and his dealings with us, let's just be full of awe at his character. All right, well, let's keep going. So we've seen this mystery that Paul is proclaiming, which is the gospel. Let's take a closer look at the minister of the mystery, at Paul himself. Because as you see there in verse 1, Paul is actually about to pray for the church. So in light of what he's just said at the end of chapter 2, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and, and then he kind of breaks off, right? He begins to talk about his ministry. And I, I think we all know that feeling, right? Especially when we're praying. We get interrupted. We, our mind trails off. We start thinking and praying about other things. It's not always a bad thing. Uh, we, we pray about things that we might not have prayed about otherwise. And, and here Paul is kind of interrupting himself mid-prayer. And he's in his joy in the gospel, in his direct address to the Gentiles, and is thinking about his ministry to them, he starts uh, just wanting to explain to them why he's doing this, why he's suffering, why he's undertaking this hard ministry in the first place. And, and then next week in verse 14, he'll pick up his prayer again. We'll consider that next week, Lord willing. But here, what what does Paul say about himself? Well, first, he says there in verse 2 that he has been given stewardship of God's grace, and that that stewardship is for the Gentiles. Uh, He then says that the mystery was known to him by revelation, that he's written about it briefly, presumably earlier in the book of Ephesians. And then there in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. This is Paul laying out his job description, right? He's been commissioned as an apostle and a preacher of the gospel, and that commission is especially 
to the Gentiles. So if you're with us on our first week together as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church on August 28, when we started Ephesians, you'll remember we spent a good bit of time thinking about the Apostle Paul, thinking about his background and how he came to Christ. He was a, a persecutor of the church. Uh, he hated Christians. He would drag them away and put them in prison. But then Jesus appeared to him as he was on his way to bring more harm to more Christians. And he, he blinded Paul temporarily and he humbled him. And then he told the man that came and helped Paul in those early days that Paul was, these are Jesus' words, cho- his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Later in in Galatians, Paul thinks back on his conversion, and he says that God set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace and revealed his son to him. Why? In order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Uh, This was the beginning of Paul's ministry. He was commissioned to preach this even to the Gentiles. And so here as he writes Ephesians, we see that that ministry has landed him in prison. That, that gospel, even to the Gentiles, has brought him to house arrest. You can read more about his, his original arrest in Acts 21 and 22. Uh, but what happened is, is that the Jews just became increasingly infuriated that Paul was preaching this stuff, that Paul was preaching Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It was anathema to them. Reconciliation between Jew and Gentile in Christ? What is he saying? Uh, And so after it kind of hits a boiling point, uh, they gang up on him and they seek to kill Paul. Uh, But Roman soldiers are alerted uh, to what was happening. They come, they break it up, and they actually give Paul a chance to address this mob that was just beating him. And he just lays out his ministry. He says, I I was a devout Jew. I was better than you all. I was a, a persecutor of the church. And then Christ came to me. And he commissioned me. And, and they're silent. They listen. Okay, Paul, we're, we're not yelling over you right now. But, but then what does he say? You can read this in Acts 22, 22 and before. He starts saying, he sent me to the Gentiles. And the crowd just loses their mind. No, not this again. And look, they, they say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And for the rest of Acts, we see Paul in custody in Rome. This presumably leads to his death, his ministry to the Gentiles. So here, in in all seriousness, he says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. This is why I'm in prison. And notice there who who he's really a prisoner of. Uh, It's not Rome. There in verse 1, who's he the prisoner of? Jesus. You can see Paul's rationale. This is his calling. This is his commission. Jesus has told him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, those who had previously been alienated and separated and cut off. So Paul is in prison primarily because of Jesus, because of what Jesus had told him to do. This, Paul makes clear, is his life's work. In light of this grand mystery of God, He brings it to the Gentiles, and he says, do not lose heart. Do you see what I'm suffering for? It's all going to be worth it. See that there in verse 13. He bookends this passage by talking about his suffering. 
He seems concerned for his Gentile readers, and he tells them not to be discouraged. Because what he's suffering, what he's being imprisoned for, is the good news that they can be reconciled to God. His suffering has been used as a tool to bring them glory. His hardship has been given by God to bring them the gospel. He takes joy in that work. Far-off Gentiles brought near. Not even handcuffs, not even chains can prevent Paul from preaching this. And, and church, I think we should pause briefly and, and be reminded here that the gospel should by nature be preached, be proclaimed. The unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul talks about there at the end of verse 8 must be communicated to those who are far off. So none of us here have Paul's position Uh, None of us are apostles. Apostles were a select group of men at the beginning of the church who saw Christ and were then commissioned to preach the gospel to the early church. But we too must proclaim this truth. Speak the truth about Jesus with our words. That's why the focal point of our Sunday morning services is me talking to you for 40 minutes. That's what we spend the most of our time doing. Because we believe that God's gospel penetrates our hearts when we speak it. God speaks his gospel to us. And so we must continue to spread that message. That's why we uh, are looking for intentional ways as a church to be involved in our community here in Percival. To be engaged, to be good neighbors to Loudoun Valley High School. To help with their power packs program for those, who, those kids who need food. Uh, that's why we want to be good neighbors to our, our uh, neighbors here in, in Percival and this community who are in need of, of food through Tree of Life and partner with them. So we don't just do those things because that's what churches do. No, we're motivated by the truth of the gospel. And we're motivated to speak that to those who are lost, that they can be saved, that they can be made alive and joined to Christ. Is proclaiming the gospel is not an option for the Christian. And let's just rejoice in the fact that this gospel we proclaim, that we're called to proclaim, isn't something trendy. It's not something that we're just like, okay, this will pitter away in, in four or five years. Nobody, everybody will remember that and be like, remember when that was a thing? God, in this passage, we see over millennia has been designing history to lead us to the gospel. And so, church, this grand plan of God should just give us boldness to proclaim it in our lives. The gospel we proclaim saved Paul, the persecutor. The gospel we proclaim saved Matthew, the tax collector. The gospel we proclaim saved promiscuous Augustine. It saved self-righteous Martin Luther. It saved slave trader John Newton. The power of the gospel has not run out It's the same gospel. It's the same power. So let's not neglect to proclaim it. Let's pray for each other. That we'd be able to preach this gospel consistently and passionately. So if you're like me and you you struggle with with fear or or negligence or complacency in sharing the gospel, uh, pause and look at this passage. How big this God of history is how small your fears are. Church, let's, let's call each other to this. 
I think for me and, and for some of us perhaps, I think this might be a, an appropriate place for accountability in the church. I mean, we always talk about accountability when we talk about other struggles with sin, right? But we don't really hold our, each other accountable to this. We don't meet up with one another and say, have you shared the gospel this week? I need people to check on, on me and ask that. That might strike you, and I think it might strike me as I was writing. I was like, what am I saying? Uh, is this a bit manipulative? I mean, shouldn't our evangelism be completely natural, like motivated by love, not by any sort of duty or compulsion? I think, I think we have to admit that, that uh, evangelism in, in a lot of the 20th century American church has been motivated by guilt, has been kind of spurred on by a desire for numbers or you know, great grand totals of baptism were a successful movement. And I think more harm has been done than good in those things. But I don't think those things need to be true of us as we hold each other accountable to making the gospel known. Evangelism is something that ought to be an outworking of our new life in Christ. And in fact, for members of Loudoun Valley, this is what we've committed to in our membership covenant. Uh, we've promised that we will, by pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. And so, church, let's be faithful in that. Let's seek to proclaim the gospel this week. Let's look for opportunities. Uh, let's, let's hold one another accountable. Let's report back with God's grace as we obey. Now, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I think all that sounds kind of weird and manipulative perhaps cultish to you. Uh, so we've had this amazing conversion experience, right? And now we, we're kind of ganging up to go out and make sure other people get in. So it's probably a pyramid scheme, right? Somebody's getting rich off this. At least somebody's getting a power trip. But friends, we sincerely hope that you understand the reason we want to proclaim the gospel to you, uh, the reason we want to kind of overcome our fear of you liking us, because we understand that this is the only way that you can have joy. This is the only way that you can have hope. This is the only way that you can be right with your creator and be saved. This is the gospel. God is holy. Uh, he created us good. Perfectly able to worship him and love each other. But each one of us has decided to turn away from him. To elevate ourselves as worthy of worship. Uh, we've broken his law. We've rejected our creator who designed us to find our joy in him. And so the result is that we're under his judgment, uh, his right justice on our sin. So we're deserving, every one of us, of death because of our rebellion against him. So all the things we see in the world, all the violence and the sin, the disharmony and the war and the hurricanes, all of that is a result of our rebellion against God that has caused this world to be fallen in sin. But God is merciful. Uh, he has not left us in this state. The Bible says that while we were still his enemies, he sent his son, Jesus, to take on humanity like us and to die in our place, taking God's just judgment on our sin. Jesus was perfect, and yet he took our sin on himself and, so that we might be found in him. If we repent of our sins and turn in faith, we will be given his righteousness and made perfectly acceptable to God. We will have God as our Father. We'll be brought lovingly into his family. We'll have eternal life. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel, and it's good news for you this morning. 
only if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. If you won't, then God remains your judge. And he will condemn you because he is good and you have sinned against him. So turn to him. If you have any questions about that, I understand that. And we'd love to talk to you more. You can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to some folks out at the Connect table. Talk to anybody who's kind of standing up here. We'd love to share with you more about the gospel. And for the rest of us, one final note on Paul before we move on to our final point. Do you see what he calls himself there in verse 8? The very least of all the saints. So Paul looks back at what he was before. He is humbled. So elsewhere in 1 Timothy, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. This is not Paul being kind of falsely modest. He wrote half of the New Testament, right? Does he really believe this? And Paul saw this incredible mystery plan of God. And it caused him to just stand in awe of this God. In awe of God's mercy even to him. In awe of the task given him to preach this mercy. He had none of those things because he was so great, because he was the most holy or he was the best debater or the best speaker. It was all because God had called him and the power of the gospel had made him alive. I remember a year or so ago looking ahead to this church plant and talking to some of you and just saying, like, you know, I, I think I'll be more mature by this. You know, I think I'll be a different Christian. I'll, I'll be a better pastor. I'll have better grasp of faith. Uh, and now we're here. And by God's grace, I have grown, but I'm still pretty much the same person, right? I'm not radically different. I, I still struggle with sin. I still neglect to share the gospel. I still fear what others think of me. But I think that's a, that's a good caution for me, and I think for all of us, brothers and sisters, like, not to wait until we're some future version of a better us before we obey, before we proclaim the gospel to those around us. We must do that now. I think as we do that, we're going to see our faith grow. So instead of becoming more mature and then sharing the gospel, I think we're going to share the gospel and see ourselves mature. We're going to see our faith grow. We're going to see our love for Christ expand. We're the very least of saints. We know ourselves really well. But let us not fear. Let's bravely proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. All right, well, we've seen the mystery. We've seen the minister. Let's close by thinking about the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God. Look there in verse 9. Paul seeks to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul proclaims this mystery so that he might bring light to those in darkness, that both Jew and Gentile would come to, to Christ. And, and then what does he say is kind of the end game of this revealed mystery? What's the purpose it's driving at? It's the wisdom of God made known. Great. Through the church. 
the church operating as a display of the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, manifold is an old word that no one except mechanics use anymore. They say it, I don't really know what they mean anyway. Uh, but it, it means many colored. Uh, again, John Stott says it was used to describe flowers, crowns, embroidered cloth, woven gar- uh, carpets. And so in some way, Paul says, this varied, diverse, excellent wisdom of God is displayed in that way through the church. I wonder, how could that be? I mean, we know the church. (laughs) We know it's broken. It's fractured. It's sinful. How can the church be the culmination of God's plan to save remember how we talked about the church our first week together in Ephesians. It's the community of believers united in Christ. And so it's kind of the trophy case of those whose lives have been transformed and are continuing to be transformed by the gospel, by the cross. It's a display of those who were dead and enslaved and have now been made alive and freed. The church is the community of those who once hated each other. Think Jew and Gentile but now have been brought near and made into this new creation. The church is where the love of Christ is lived out in those redeemed new hearts full of affection for Jesus and his people. The church is the very body of Christ, showing its glory, showing his glory and its unity with itself and its members, even with all the diverse complexities of different nations, languages, cultures, backgrounds, persecutions. Quote John Stott one more time. He says, The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Uh, Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It's God's new society. And the many colored fellowship of the church is the reflection of the many colored wisdom of God. And, And notice there in verse 10 who it is that sees this wisdom in us, in the church. Paul says it's the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we've seen that phrase multiple times, heavenly places, throughout Ephesians. And and remember, it refers to the spiritual realm around us, uh, the realm where Christ is seated on his throne, but the devil is still at war with God. Well, it's that realm of angelic and demonic forces, this spiritual realm that looks at the church and sees the wisdom of God. In his first epistle, the apostle Peter uh, writes about this plan of God, and he says it's something into which angels long to look. This plan, not only to save people for God, but to unite, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, all things in heaven and things on earth in Christ. It's like this whole plan for the world is just united in Christ. This is, uh, this is the end, this is the purpose of God's creation. And it shows off his wisdom. Jesus is king, the church shouts. And the universe hears, and the demons shudder, and the angels rejoice. This was all God's purpose from eternity there in verse 11 and 12. To make a new people, a new community with boldness and access to him through Christ. So brothers and sisters, the church displays to the universe the wisdom of God. 
that displays his plan to save and how he has brought that plan to fulfillment, keeping all his promises. It displays how he has set apart a people, but then now he has incorporated the Gentiles and brought about a new people to bring everyone from all walks of life in every corner of the earth who will repent and believe. It displays how he uses a battered, sinful, suffering people who follow a battered, suffering Savior. And it displays in, its, in our love for one another the power of the gospel to change our hearts. Church, we are the display of God's wisdom as we love one another, as we live out the gospel, as we find our joy and unity in Christ alone. Mark Dever puts it this way. Consider a group of Jews and Gentiles who share nothing in common except for a centuries-old loathing for one another. For a less extreme modern-day parallel, think of liberal Democrats and libertarian Republicans in your own neighborhood. Bring them together in the local church where they rub shoulders on a regular basis and things explode, right? No. Because of the one thing they do have in common, the bond of Christ. They live together in astonishing love and unity. Unity that is so unexpected, so contrary to how our world operates, that even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms sit up and take notice. And so, church family, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, this is God's plan for us, to use us, to use other gospel-preaching churches in our community to display his wisdom and his gospel to the world and to the universe. So let's pray that this grand kind of cosmic vision of our church's purpose will encourage us, will embolden us, will give us great energy and joy as we speak the gospel and look forward to when our Savior comes back. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for planning to save us, to make us a new community in Christ. Lord, we humble ourselves with Paul, knowing our hearts, how sinful we are, and we just marvel at your mercy that you would invite us into your church. What mercy, Lord. We ask that you would send us out from this meeting with fresh courage and zeal to see others come to you. As we close with this final hymn, we ask that you would make the heart of these words true of us. That we would long to see your churches full so that all your people, all your chosen race will be able to, with one voice, sing your redeeming love. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name. Amen.